This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 501st episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a top young actress and producer who is coming off the biggest year of her career so far. Since establishing herself in comedies on screens big and small, in particular on the NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation, on which she played the key supporting part of April Ludgate, an apathetic intern, for seven seasons spanning 2009 through 2015, She has, to quote the New York Times, continually reinvented herself, and, to quote the Los Angeles Times, emerged as a performer of surprising depth and range, and a creative force to be reckoned with behind the camera, too. Indeed, this year, Amy Poehler described her as one of the most interesting actors working today, and Time Magazine selected her as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. The star and producer of John Patton Ford's acclaimed 2022 independent film Emily the Criminal, and a standout supporting actress on the second season of Mike White's massively popular 2022 HBO drama series The White Lotus, Aubrey Plaza. Over the course of our conversation, the 38-year-old and I discussed how she was changed by a freak stroke that she suffered at the age of just 21. The insane first week that she spent in L.A., during which she landed her parts in Funny People, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and Parks and Rec. The sense of resentment that she felt for a time about being regarded by some as a good fit only for deadpan characters like April. Whether she, having twice hosted the Spirit Awards, would like to one day host the Oscars. Some dish about two of her upcoming projects, Disney Plus's WandaVision spinoff Agatha, Coven of Chaos, and Francis Ford Coppola's self-financed final film Megalopolis plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Aubrey, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you. And on this podcast, we always begin uh, truly at the beginning. I wonder if you can just share for our listeners, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Um... I, hello. Thanks for having me, Scott. Um, I was born in Wilmington, Delaware, at the Wilmington General Hospital, I believe, um, or Wilmington Hospital. And my parents, uh, my parents have had a lot of jobs over the years, but um, so, you know, when I was a girl, when I was born, my parents were, my mom was putting herself through night school to um, become a lawyer. And she did, in fact, become a lawyer. So she is a lawyer. And um, but she worked all kinds of jobs like 
you know, when I was growing up, um, putting yourself through school and all that. And then my dad um, is a financial advisor. Um, and he also, uh, he also kind of, yeah, I, I believe that there's a lot of funny stories about their jobs, but I believe in, at one point when they were young, they were both working at a, lo- a local Wawa. And I think my mom was, if you, if you're from the East coast, you know what a Wawa is, but That's right. my mom was like the manager of a Wawa. And I think my dad worked underneath her at some point. Anyway, they had all kinds <laughs> of crazy jobs, but, but, but lawyer and stockbroker is the, is the answer. Yeah. And I mean, I just reading for this, I, it's, uh, I guess they were unusually young when you came along, right? That I wonder, how do you think that, uh, impacted, you know, shaped you as a kid? Yes, they were. Uh, my mom got pregnant with me when she was nineteen, um, and had me at twenty. I think she was twenty when I came out, and um, I think I think it has yeah, I think it has so much to do with who I am and um, kind of my experience of having young parents. And but young was one thing, but also just kind of growing up watching my parents just hustle you know Mm -hmm. like they were they were so ambitious and um and just uh, it was very inspiring I think for me to to grow up around and watch your parents kind of go from nothing um you know to having like these kind of amazing careers and um it was yeah and I think it shaped me a lot because I think when I was when when I was first born you know we lived kind of in a really kind of small apartment. And um, there's one story that my mom, uh, that I'm, I think is true, which, and I have this like memory of it, but I think it might be like a mix of maybe it's just because people have told me, but it was right. like, I was in a crib, I was in a crib and they were sleeping on a mattress on the floor. I have this like memory of that, but I don't know if it's a real memory or not, but, um, but yeah. So I think kind of see kind of watching them, you know, I don't know hustle their way through life was very, very, very much shaped who I am. I think I had that, that kind of hustle approach mentality in my, in my blood, my DNA. And it's interesting because obviously the character that most people first got to know you as was sort of, uh, the exact opposite of of a hustler, right? Like somebody who's (laughs) kind of phoning it in. And so I, and yet, in fact, I guess in your life, you've noted, you know, because people, Sometimes I don't know why, but I guess there's an assumption they think that the um, character is also the actor, which it sounds like as a kid was very much not, you know, you're not April. You were pretty different, right? Um, yeah, I think I was very different. I think um, that happens a lot. I mean, I take it as a compliment when people just assume that you are your character. I think it's um kind of a compliment in some ways because you're like well i must be doing a great job if they believe this is a real person right but of course there are a lot of things that are similar but um but yeah i uh i'm definitely growing up i was i was i was never phoning it in i was very much um participating in all kinds of activities and uh, very much a leader and uh motivated and more way more probably type a and than, than people would think than and the how, characters that I play. And so where along the line, and I, and I guess why does acting enter the picture? It seems like there were a lot of other interests and, and hobbies and things going on. Why, I guess, with community theater or something, why did that first begin? Um, why did, 
why well, did community theater begin? Or? Well, how did you, I mean, what led to you getting involved in the first place with that? Oh, um, I followed my cousin, my cousin, Lindsay, my older cousin. Um, I'm a, I'm the oldest of three sisters. So I, I never had like an older sibling. And so she was kind of like my older sibling and I kind of, you know, just thought she was so cool and did, wanted to do whatever she did. And she started doing plays at the Wilmington Drama League, which is a community theater where I grew up. And um, and I went to see her do that at a probably, I don't remember how old I was, maybe like 11, um, 11-ish. Um, and I just remember going into the, the Drama League and they were holding auditions for a play and all the, in the lobby and all the, all the kids were sitting on the floor and the way they were doing the auditions was everybody had to, when it was your turn, you had to stand up in front of everybody and do your audition, either sing a song or, or do your little monologue or something. And I just remember sitting in the back and watching that and going, Oh my gosh, like these kids, they're so brave. Like they don't care at all what they look like. They just are getting up there in front of everybody and, doing this thing. And there was just something that I thought was so um, cool about that. And so freeing. And I think I, uh, I was a slightly shy child before that. Um, and then I think, I don't know, I just, just, there was something about trying to do that, that, that it really got me going. And then I, and then I decided I'm going to audition too, and I'm going to go for it. And then I got, and then I just got real, I fell in love with the theater at that point. And I was, I spent most, most of that, my middle school, high school years, doing plays at the drama league and um, being very, very uh, active in that community. I think I just felt like I had found my people there, you know, at all the, cause there was no school. It wasn't affiliated with the school. So it was just people that were gravitating towards theater and um, artists. And I think I just found out like at a young age, like, Oh wow, this is, this feels like where I fit in. And was that also where improv entered the picture? Because I, I think I read that you were, you were doing that even there was a, maybe a bit of a commute to go and do that as early as high school, right? Yes, I was, I started improv in high school um, in Philadelphia. I found some, I, I, I became very um, into sketch comedy and improv um, early, you know, miss, you know, kids in the hall and um, the upgrade citizens brigade theater, the, the sketch show and um, all those kinds of things were, I was really into and, um, so I found, uh, some improv theaters in Philly and I would go, I would drive up there and, and do those classes, like, um, probably around 15, 16 is when I started doing that. Yeah. And when you, when you eventually go off, I know to, to NYU Tisch, like at that point, is there, are we, a, is that, has a decision already been made that, you know, Hey, I'm going to pursue acting or comedy, or were you just open to whatever, you know, see where that might lead at that point? I was very uh, strategic from a young age. I felt very, I was very, very, very obsessed with Saturday, Saturday Night Live. And um, I, it was a dream of mine to be, to be on that show, um, as I'm sure it is for so many people. Um, because I grew up on, I grew up on that show. And I just remember um, researching how the cast members um, got on that show. And then, but, but, but ultimately with the the ultimate goal for me was to act, you know, in movies. I love movies more than anything. And um, there were so many people on that show that I felt um, that were very inspiring to me because they were comedians and they were doing sketch comedy, but then they would kind of do movies and 
do dramas like Adam Sandler was someone that I've always looked up to. I love his career. And at a young age, I just, I just, yeah, I just was, to me, that was the ultimate, like what he did, what he does is kind of like, I was like, he has it all, you know? Um, So I, so I found, so I had a plan. My plan was to, to do improv comedy and hopefully, you know, audition for SNL, get on SNL and then, and then do movies. Um, So my plan didn't work out exactly like that, (laughs) but I'm happy with, how it worked out but uh, yeah. yeah and that we was, will that was my thinking yeah definitely and i mean the fact is that it came pretty close to to snl i, I know we'll we'll get to there in a, in a minute chronologically but just while you're at nyu so you're doing now in new york some stuff with with ucb right and i mean we actually just had the last episode was john mulaney i think he said he remembers you from there right no, yeah yeah Oh yeah, Mulaney was so funny. Yeah, I used to watch all those shows. So there's UCB. Then then you're, I guess this is early uh, early days of broadband or whatever. You're you're also involved with uh, online uh, an online series while you're at NYU. Is that right? Yeah, I was. Well, I was. You know, I was taking classes at UCB, doing live shows at night, and um, I was around at the time when kind of web series were first starting out. Um, and I was cast in the Jeannie Tate show, which is a, I, I'm assuming that's the one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, but that yeah. I was, I was, yeah. So I was in a class. Um, I was in class with Maggie Carey, and um, and she had created this show with Liz Kakowski, who was a writer on Saturday Night Live at that time, um, and with Bill Hader as well. Um, so they cast me as kind of this teenage delinquent kind of daughter. Um, of the of Liz Kikowski's character, uh, Jeannie Tate, and that kind of that yeah that kind of became like that an early kind of iteration of April Ludgate. It was kind of the first time that I'd done a character like that, um, and so yeah, I, I credit I credit that web series a lot because I I think that's kind of how that was the first kind of thing that got me out there. I think I think some junior comedy agents had had seen it and because there were some notable people on it and it, it really, I think it really helped kind of, yeah, get my stuff out there. So I know that I believe it's between your junior and senior year over the summer, something pretty crazy happened, which I didn't know about certainly until I started prepping for this, but I imagine it's got to have a pretty major effect on, on a person. And that is that you had a stroke. Uh, I I guess I just wonder, did you ever figure out kind of, I mean, thank God it seems like, you know, you, you clearly bounced back, but was, do you ever figure, did you ever figure out what caused that and how do you think it, it changed you? Not even in terms of, of health, but just outlook and goals. I would imagine it could mm-hmm. really jar a person. Yeah. So I think it's always, unfortunately going to be a slight mystery um, in terms of what caused it. There's definitely theories um, I think the strongest theory is that it was caused by orthotricycline, which is uh, the birth control pill, uh, one of the one of the types of birth control pills. Um, that was the only really thing that I had put, kind of put into my body that was like new in my system at that time. Um, and I was 20, so I was really young. And, um, you know, they I mean, they have warnings on those things that say it's possible, you know, but it's usually like one in a million chance that it could happen. So I guess I'm not, I'm not a statistic, but, um, but so it's scary. Yeah. I've never taken uh, hormones again. Um, 
really freaked out by the by that by that stuff now. Um, and uh, but you know, it, it's not it's not a hundred percent you know positive that that caused it, but it feels like it was. But um, and yeah, I think it changed me a lot. I mean, I think it was really like a near death experience, and I'm so fascinated by um, re- reading about near death experiences and kind of like understanding like what happens to people right before they die. And, um, I had it, you know, I had to, there were certain physical things that happened to me that I've read about in other books when people have had kind of near death experiences or they've died and then come back to life. Like there's some similar stuff that went on. So it's all kind of fascinating to me. I think maybe on an unconscious level, like it's shaped me in a, in just a way that where I feel like I always have an underlying kind of feeling that life is short, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. things, you know, could be taken away from you in a second. I mean, in a, just out of nowhere. So I think maybe that dictates how I kind of live my life sometimes for better or for worse. Sometimes I have that, I have that kind of attitude where I'm just like, you know, there's a lot more going on. I think also when I had this stroke, um, it's a really weird sensation because your brain is not working, but you're still, um, there's still some kind of, uh, kind of consciousness that's happening. And so it was very, very interesting to me because I realized when looking back on it, that it was a, it was very clearly, it taught me that there is you and then there's your brain. Mm -hmm. And, because me, whatever that is, whatever me is, was going, was very, was fully aware of everything that was happening when I had the stroke. And the me was going, uh oh, like I can't talk. My brain isn't uh, working. I can't say the words that I want to say right now. But when you really think about that, you're like, wow, that's pretty amazing that there's something else going on. I don't know what it is your soul or your, 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 you. Um, yeah. so it's kind of trippy to think about, but I think like all that stuff is, has always uh, been re- really interesting to me since that happened. Oh, it's fascinating. And, and it does seem like maybe because you were so young when it happened, you were able to kind of bounce back pretty, pretty quickly and fully, right? Yes. And- yes. Thank Yeah. Thankfully. So thankfully, I think my, yeah, my brain was elastic. I was very young, so I yeah. don't have any, a lot of residual problems i don't know if this next thing not to go from heavy to light but i mean i think that you yeah yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, i i think that around that same time might have been a little bit before might have been a little after but your uh association with nbc i guess kind of began there right you were just this is a mm-hmm. i think a trivia thing that came up when you hosted snl i uh but what was going on like how did you what were you doing there? And then eventually I think it did kind of culminate in an audition for, for uh, SNL that, you know, it's kind of the realization of what you said you'd been thinking about all along as a kid, right? Yeah. Well, I got an internship at Saturday night live um, through school. um, And I was an intern in the design department, which was a set design, which was working for the set designers. So I wasn't, um, doing, you know, like a creative, um, internship or anything for them, but it was really cool because I got to be there. Um, I got to understand how the show worked and I got to, you know, be there all hours of the night. And, um, and I took advantage of, of, of the opportunity for sure. I read all the, all the sketches, all the scripts and just observed 
you know, tried to absorb as much as I could. Um, but, but, um, but it's very different when you're in that position than when you're like, you know, being on the show or being considered to be on the show uh, at that point, I was not at all. I think I was, I was just like, so lucky to be there. Um, and yeah, then I think timing wise, yeah, I guess it was pretty soon after that, that I, that I started um, getting some more acting opportunities and I was kind of preparing my audition um, for, for the show. And I kind of, as I, along with a bunch of other people at, at UCB at that time, and they kind of did, they had preliminary auditions they would do kind of preliminary like showcases at the theater and then if you made it through that level then you would eventually if you you would make it to the studio 8h audition which is like the classic one that everybody kind of knows about um i never made it that far but um but at least i got to do like one of the preliminary showcases absolutely do you remember uh was there a highlight of kind of your your audition there, anything that stands out about what you did or how people reacted or anything like that? Oh my gosh. My memory is so bad. I, (laughs) I don't remember anything, but I do, I do remember I did an impression of Sarah Silverman that kind of was like, you know, one of the impressions that I had done. Um, I believe I did a Joy Behar impression. (laughs) Um, I can't remember the other ones, but, but it's funny because at that time, when you were doing comedy stuff, it was, it was new thing to kind of throw your stuff up on YouTube. Um, not knowing that it would just continue to have this life that you didn't (laughs) ask for. But I remember, cause I remember years later, people would bring up the Sarah Silverman impression and go like, I can't believe you did that Sarah Silverman impression. I'm like, Oh no, that was just for, that was just for like an audition. I wasn't like going around to clubs doing it. (laughs) Um, but but like, yeah. And then I did a bunch of characters and I think I, I, one of the, I think one of the characters I did was like this talk show host and I made a show called Celebrity Tales where I would just name celebrities and name like tail, the kind of tail animal tales they would have. And it was just really silly, kind of silly right. stuff. But. So that was, I believe in 08, in 09 is when I think people first really started seeing you in a bunch of stuff pretty much all at once. And I, and the story of how that happened uh, is pretty mind blowing. I'm sure it must uh, drive crazy. Any other actors who, who you share it with. And I just wonder if you can talk about, I believe you're 22 and you take your first trip to LA. What were the, what were the circumstances that led to that trip and what went on in a, in I think a week, like just a lot of stuff happened in a week, right? Yeah, so basically I got a I went through the process of auditioning for funny people. Um I made a tape, a self-tape, um which which is funny weird trivia is that Donald Glover actually filmed that tape for me and helped me with my audition and was playing the part of Seth Rogen's character oh, um yeah. on the other end of the camera. Um Cause we filmed it. We actually filmed my audition when we were shooting mystery team, which was the first movie I, I was ever in, which is Donald Glover's um, sketch group. Um, and so we filmed that audition while we were shooting on set and Donald helped me and, um, and, and it turned out they loved the tape. Um, but they were, the character was a stand up comedian. So they wanted to cast someone that really does stand up which I was not doing at the time. I was only doing improv and sketch, but I just thought, okay, well, fuck it. I'm just going to 
be a stand-up comedian. Um, I can do that. And so I, so I went up uh, at, again, I think it was Donald Glover's, I think he had like a, yeah, he had like an open mic night kind of thing in Long Island City. I can't remember what the club was called, but I think he let me get up there and do like five minutes and I had my friend tape it. And um, I kind of wrote jokes in the style of what I thought the character was in the film. So it was more of like an acting exercise for me. Um, and I sent that tape in and, and very quickly they loved it too. And they just decided they wanted me to come to LA and do a chemistry read with Seth Rogen as kind of the final step of the process. And so at that time I didn't really have uh, representations like so much, um, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of agents, but I went out and Allison Jones, who was the casting director on funny people, she just really took a liking to me and she asked me if I could maybe do some other meetings that she would send me on. And I was like, sure, I'll do whatever you want. Um, and so then she sent me to meet Greg Daniels and Mike Schur, who were at that time kind of developing the Parks and Rec script. And then I, she sent me into a director session, which is an audition, which means like you're auditioning for the director for Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Um, and so, which I didn't even also realize I had skipped a bunch of steps and gone right into the director <laughs> session on that one too. So it was just, uh, it was a band, it was like three, three really kind of huge things that I, that I did. And then I eventually found out I ha- I got all three of them, um, which was a complete <laughs> like shock. And I just, it doesn't happen like that. It's just, it's a really weird, I don't know what's going on that week. I was like wearing (laughs) jean shorts. I I don't know. It was, I I think it was just like, I had no idea how, yeah, how big of a deal these meetings were. And so maybe there was an element of like, it seemed like I didn't care so much or I don't know, but it it worked out, whatever that, whatever. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That was. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, maybe it's the fact that, and certainly I guess in the case of, of Parks and Rec, the fact that you weren't super impressed with uh, the whole thing um, seems to have worked in your favor, right? I mean, with, with, uh, I guess maybe if we can just quickly tackle them one by one, funny people, just so to remind folks, Judd Apatow and your, and your man Sandler, who you've talked about carrying, you know, being a, a big admirer, uh, you're playing, um, the standup who's sort of the love interest of Rogan's character. Um, I guess the, the story is basically essentially, you know, inspired by Judd's life, 
your character, I think, was modeled on Janine Garofalo, who he'd worked with when he was younger. So mm-hmm. there you're in that comedy, like Judd's comedy world for the first time and his stock company and whatever. Any any just major takeaway from that one? Uh, from be- from being in Judd's Yeah, just like Judd's what, yeah, the, yeah, the, or, or just that, that yeah. film. Yeah. I mean, so like, you know, I had done nothing. I had done Mystery Team, which was a very different film than Funny People. Um, Funny People was like a $80 million movie that Janusz Kaminski was shooting. I mean, Sandler was the star of it. He uh, Sandler hadn't done um, stand-up, I don't think, in like 20 years or something. So it was like a huge – it was just such a huge – it was just crazy. I mean – the biggest like takeaway that I had was just a, like everybody was so nice to me. Um, Sandler really looked out for me. You know, he would come up to me on set. I had no idea what was going on. You know, he would come up to me on set and go like, you know, you you good, you good. Like you need anything, like everything going all right. And, you know, I'd be like, yeah, man, I don't know. I just keep my head down, try not to get fired. Um, And I just remember, you know, like everyone was cool. Like Jonah, Jonah Hill, Seth Rogen, um, Jason Schwartzman, those guys just really, they took me under their wing. And I had really never experienced Hollywood or LA before I didn't know what was going on. So they were, they were just, they're so, all those guys are just so grounded and they're just normal, sweet guys. Um, and so I was, I got really lucky cause I, I didn't know, you know, how my experience would, would be, but I just, I, I felt like I hit the jackpot. I was like, this is such a, this is the most amazing crew to be welcoming me into Hollywood. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was, it was all positive. It was just, a, it was such a, it was a literal dream come true. And um, yeah. And I guess chronologically the, the next, next thing would be um, Parks and Rec, although the pilot might've been actually, no, maybe the pilots before and then you, but whatever, I guess just, uh, <laughs> Just to tee that one up here, I think for- I shot Funny People first, and mm-hmm. then I sh- and then I went right into shooting the pilot. I'm pretty sure. Okay, am I wrong about that? But I but I think the weird thing was that Parks and Rec aired first, so I think I had shot Funny People first, but then Parks and Rec aired on television first. So that seemed to be the first thing that people saw me in because. That just it ju- it just got it out there faster, I think. Interesting. Well, just in case anyone is, you know, living under a rock, uh, for Parks and Rec, April Ledgate, described by Ron Swanson as both aggressively mean and apathetic, the whole package, um, sort of apathetic intern. This is seven seasons, I believe it was in total for you guys. Yeah. But it started, you know, as we say, you came out of that week in LA and, and got it. But I mean that the, the, the version of the, I, I want to get your version of, of how you ended up actually cast. Cause I think originally they're, they were essentially casting you to play or, or interested in you to literally play your yourself, essentially your, um, you, you know, like, I think it was literally called Aubrey. So how did, how did it, how did you even, uh, kind of wind up in the room with these guys who I think at the time were still dealing with the office. Right. And, and then this character, where did it, where did it come from? I mean, Mike sure has a version of this story that I'm like, 
that I, it's like, again, my memory is so bad. I'm sure he has a better memory than me and he understands, but he describes our meeting. He describes our meeting as like, I met the weirdest person I've ever met in my life. I'm like, what did I do that was so weird? Um, but um, it doesn't take much to weird, weird Mike Sure out. But, um, but yes, they were working on The Office. So the cool thing for me at that time was I was a huge fan of The Office. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember what season they were on, but their offices were at The Office set, um, which was like somewhere in the valley or something. So I had driven out there. Um, and I was just kind of on the set and I was so overwhelmed by the fact that I was near famous people that I was on a set that they're shooting the office. I kept looking in the hallway going, Oh my God, like Mindy Kaling just walked by and um, BJ Novak just walked by. Like I'm seeing all these people going like, I can't believe I'm here. This is crazy. That was what I was mainly focused on. Um, but then, and then I think Mike was like asking me questions and, I didn't really know what I was supposed to say because I had never been on a general meeting before. So I didn't really know, like, I'm supposed to be selling myself here. Like, I'm wearing jean shorts. Like, I was just a tourist at that point. <laughs> I was doing tourist stuff. In fact, I think I had been driving around trying to find, like, Judy Garland's house or something. <laughs> um, and then and then Greg Daniels came into the meeting. And then I don't know what happened. Then it definitely got weird, I think, because Greg is so he's a he's such a fun weirdo. And I think we started talking about like the meaning of life and what happens after you die. And it just started getting like really heavy. And like, <laughs> I don't know, Mike was I just remember like Greg and I were sitting there having some kind of crazy like existential like conversation and then Mike was just like staring at us going like what am I watching here <laughs> and um and then we started talking about the show and I think I remember like they hadn't written completely written the pilot yet but they were saying that oh yeah we were thinking we that Leslie Nope you know might have like an assistant kind of character um and at that time you know I had just done a bunch of internships and like I said before, I have two younger sisters. So I was around kind of like teenagers at that time. And I just, and I had done the Jeannie Tate show and I knew that that kind of vibe was funny. And I think I just kind of pitched to them like, uh, you know, what if, what if this, what if the assistant was like, you know, really smart and really good at her job, but like does not give a shit about working there, (laughs) just wants the college credit and is like, the opposite of Leslie Nope, where she's just like rolling her eyes the whole time and but she's good at her job. I was like, right. I kind of pitched them that not thinking like it was a re- they were going to take me seriously. And then, yeah, and then the next thing I know, I got a call and they said, like, you're casting the show. And that was it. And then I was like, what? Um, <laughs> and then they sent me the original script. And yes, it did. The character's name was Aubrey, I believe, in the very, very, very original pilot script, which I think I have somewhere in a vault somewhere. And then, um, and then they said, well, you know, uh, we're going to change the character's name to April. Um, Cause it can't be literally your name. And also NBC wants you to audition for them to do to just to, so they can see you do this character. And I'm like, right. okay. So they can see me do myself, but I mean, right. it, it was a character. It was right. definitely a character, but it was like, they, I don't know. So then I did, I did. And I believe that's also like, 
on YouTube or something, but um, it was just funny to me because I'm like, I've never auditioned to play myself before. It's hilarious. <laughs> um, thank God I got the part. Um, it would have been really weird if I didn't. <laughs> That's like, yeah, I'm looking. We're looking for an Aubrey Plaza type, and then they, <laughs> there you are. Right. Uh, but um, I, I have to ask you about because I know you have come to. I don't know if hate is too strong a word, but the word deadpan, right, is mm-hmm. always uh, yes. has often been used and. I, it sounds like mm-hmm. from what the way you're describing it, like that was part of what you suggested here. But I, uh, I read one thing where you said when you were asked about, you know, uh, that persona, which even you, I think, have made fun of, like at the at the SAG Awards this year with Jenna Ortega. Right. That was part of that. Just uh-huh. like the um, yeah. but you said, quote, if I really want to psychoanalyze myself, it could be just like. Uh, or could be like just a defense mechanism. I prefer to just kind of live my life like I'm going to die any minute or something. I don't want to take anything too seriously, close quote. So it sort of kind of comes back, I guess, to what, um, you know, you were talking about after the stroke. But this, this, uh, yeah. how quickly did did you come to maybe uh, resent that that was what people thought that was like the the extent of your, your range for a while? I don't know. I mean, I... I can't recall, but I just know that I, I think it just, I think I always wanted to do movies. I always wanted to do different characters and I was so lucky to get cast on a, on a television show, but I never in my wildest dreams expected to be on a sitcom that would go on for seven years and that would have so many episodes. And I'm so thankful it did because I got so much set experience on that show. I mean, um, it's just, you learn so much by being on a set day after day for so long. Um, but I think like, I would say after a couple of years of doing the show, I, I got, you know, I had that kind of itch where the minute I was on hiatus, I was doing movies. I was like, I gotta do movies. I gotta do other characters because people don't know that I can do other things (laughs) because they're seeing me in their living room. Like, doing this every every day so of course they think that that's that that's all I can do um so I think you know I think at first there was a time when I felt like kind of bitter about it where I was like no like that's that's a character you know and but then I think I think it's all wrapped up in these like talk show appearances that I would do as well because I think I always had a kind of funny approach to doing doing talk shows because I'm a comedian so I never understood the idea of going on television and not have doing a bit or not trying to make make it funny or not trying to make it interesting in some way it's just it does goes against how I am so to me that's just another opportunity for performance um and I know it's like once you're aware of what people expect of you there's some part of me that you know I don't know if it is a defensive mechanism or if it's just you know I don't know, but I, I think there is a part of me that's just goes, I know what everybody wants. I'm going to give them what they want. Right. You know, it's just, it's just better for everybody. <laughs> um, but maybe I did that too many times. Um, but I think I just, yeah, I think it's like, I don't mind, like, I don't mind the persona. I don't mind any of that. And it's, it's deeply, you know, co- connected to who I am. But I think, um, I think there was a time that I, that I, w- that I had a bitterness kind of about, being just like put in a box, this deadpan box or whatever you want to call it. But I fought very hard and to kind of 
get out of that. Um, and I was going to say, as we talk after I have, I, yeah. So. No, just the, the only in this, only that, uh, you know, I'm going to mention a few of the movies you've done since and other things that have obviously, you know, blown that idea to, to smithereens that that was, you know, the, the limits of it, but just one last thing about, um, Parks and Rec, just because this is obviously a big chunk mm-hmm. of your life. Um, you've said that Amy Poehler and Rashida Jones kind of became very important in your, not just at work, but in your life. You've said that, you know, mm-hmm. as you just said here, like, you know, the experience is invaluable, what you can learn from just working that much. But um, I just wonder, looking back at it, it, it must have been a bit of an emotional roller coaster just being a- associated with the show because critics loved it the people who knew about it loved mm-hmm. it but it was always this uh it feels like it was always on the brink of of cancellation and and extinction and yeah. just for, so like what was what was the issue there why why do you think it it had to go through its life in uh you know kind of in that way was that just people going into it thinking they're getting the office and then it they're jarred by or, or I don't want to put words in your mouth just I wonder if you have a theory about yeah, that yeah 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 I mean, I think that, uh, look, like television to me, it's like, I think that um, it takes time. Some It takes time to to find char- the characters and to lock into kind of characters sometimes. And that this is what I'm so deeply like saddened about the state of television today and with all the streaming services, because they don't take the time to let characters develop over multiple seasons. Like a lot of times they'll do one season or two seasons and they're like, okay, we're good. We got enough. We're good. Moving on. But Parks and Rec is a great example of why if you let shows, you know, have more than two seasons, you start to get into the really good stuff because you, and I mean, of course you have to have all the other elements of place. You have to have, funny actors and really good actors and really great writing and all that. But it, I think it's a combination of those things. And I think that, I think that parks and rec definitely was up against a lot of expectations in the beginning for, because of the office, because of, I'm sure because of polar coming off of SNL and there were, you know, and I think like, I think it just took, I think it took a minute to, to lock into it. And I think, the first season it's like you can tell it's like we're working it out we're all kind of figuring out our dynamics um and it's still funny and it's still good but it doesn't yeah it doesn't get it doesn't really start to just fucking go like probably until the next season end of the next season or something i don't remember Mm -hmm. it's been years since i watched it but i think it's just what it's just if it takes time i think sometimes to, to to develop it and i think if you allow it to, to, to have that time, it, it can, it can be transcendent. But I think, yeah. um, I think also, you know, yeah, I don't know. It did feel like that. It always felt like we were kind of the underdog, you know, we were never, I don't think, yeah, we were, we, <laughs> we were never, our ratings were never that <laughs> that good. Um, but I think that part of that fueled, fueled us. You know, yeah. I think there, there was an element of that too, that was really, was really great because, we all had to kind of go season by season feeling like this could be it. This could be it. We could be done with. Um, And we all loved each other and had so much fun that we didn't want it to end. So I think it was kind of, that was probably part of why we, we kept going so strong. Nobody was phoning it in. You know, we were just, right. We were just going for it until the end. So you mentioned, and and we have to note that during these off seasons, 
uh, or hiatus as you guys were, uh, or you were, you were branching out. And I think the first big example of that would have probably been safety, not guaranteed. This is in 2012, uh, another intern, but a very different situation. Um, and this mm-hmm. is produced by the Duplass brothers. Uh, I guess the first time you're offered something without even having to audition in any way. Right. And just, it was, did you feel like yeah. that was, was sort of a, a, a turning point in terms of just maybe showing uh, a different side of yourself as an actress? Definitely. Um, that was my first leading role. Um, that was my first kind of like starring role in a movie. So it felt like a really big deal for me because it, you know, it felt like, okay, like this is the first time uh, that my character will really be shouldering kind of the, uh, the emotional journey of this film. And um, obviously along with Mark Duplass too, but like, and Jake Johnson, but, and Karen Sony, I'll just name all the cast. Um, but I think, yeah, it was a bit huge deal for me. It was, kind of going, you know, and there was, I think going through the process of shooting that, um, that, that style of movie, obviously there was a script, um, but there was of course like improv involved and um, just a lot of, yeah, development. And it was the first time that I really went through the process with my acting coach, um, Ivana Chubbuck, um, it was kind of the first time that I, that I got to present like, okay, here's this full journey that I'm going to go on this full arc. How do I, how do I map this out? How do I do this? Um, so it was a huge learning process for me. And then I think just all the people involved were, were, were so, were so great. It felt like we had lightning in a bottle kind of, and, uh, the Sundance experience on that film was, was, was really, really incredible. And I don't know, just, it, it just really, it felt very organic, just all kind of came into place next one i'm going to mention i guess came out after parks and rec i don't know when it started uh production but this is another just kind of great little indie that i think showed um another side of you which is ingrid goes west this is you're playing this mentally uh disturbed woman who's obsessed with and starts stalking an instagram influencer um i think that there's a dramatic side to this uh character that you know i think maybe again by just because of tv and the way it works and whatever there was everybody knew you could do comedy i don't know if they knew that you could uh necessarily do the dramatic stuff as well and i wonder if and mm-hmm. maybe also an early time that you're a producer as well right i don't know if maybe you hadn't done that before i can't remember where it would have begun uh yeah so that was technically that was my second uh producing credit um mm-hmm. my first producing credit was the little hours Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I'll say, you know, I was not a, as much of a hands-on producer on, on the little hours as I was on Ingrid Goes West. Ingrid Goes West was the first film that I read the script and met with the director and just was very much like, I want to produce this movie. Like, you know, I want to be involved in every step of it, um, from the be- very beginning to the very end. And, um, and, uh, I was very, 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 um, involved in, in just every part of it. And so I learned a lot on that movie um, about producing. And I, I think I, I think um, tonally, yeah, it was just, that's what, that was what was exciting about it to me. I was like, these are the kind of movies that I like. They're funny, yeah. but they're, they're also dramatic. They're also, they've got, a, got it all. They've got a lot going on. 
And um, my goal for that film was like, I want to make a great film. I, I want to be good in the movie, but I want to make a great film. I want to make a film that people want to watch more than once, that people remember. Um, I thought a lot about King of Comedy when we made that movie. Um, I thought a, a lot about, you know, To Die For. Just I just thought of movies, uh, classic films, that I'm just like, I, I want to make a movie like that. I want, I, 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 independent films are so hard to make great. You can make a good one, but it's hard to make a really, really great one. And so um, my brain was kind of firing on all cylinders on that one. And I just, I think, I don't know, looking back on that film, it's like, it, the cast was just incredible in that movie. And I think like, it taught me a lot about casting, it taught me mm-hmm. a lot about casting. It's just like, man, casting is so important. If you can find, if you can really nail the casting, it's like, you're already ahead of the game. Yeah. Um, next one flashing forward just three years, but uh, Black Bear, uh, I know was a, grind you know a grueling one for probably a, a number of reasons but just if anyone needs a log line essentially and it's not easy to to summarize or i'm not even confident that i'm getting it you know having seen it i'm not confident that i'm teasing it properly but basically filmmaker staying at a lake house and an actress in a film being shot at the same lake house but in two parts where you don't know is which one is actually necessarily inspiring the other mm-hmm. and just a mind fuck as you've described it. Um, any uh, anything you'd want to add about that one? Um. Well, again, casting. Um, yeah. You know that there was a lot of um, things. There were a lot of requirements that I had for me to do that film because. Uh, I knew how hard it was going to be reading the script. Um, Larry Levine, Lawrence Levine, Lawrence Michael Levine, um, who wrote the script and directed the film, wrote a beautiful script, and um, but a really scary script for me. And I just felt like, wow, um, I got to be in really good hands here. And I knew about Christopher Abbott um, prior to to that script, and I I had a feeling about him. I just loved. I love watching him and I felt like that that's my guy. Like I want to, I want to work with him. I, I feel like I'm in really good hands with him. And, um, and I don't know that, that movie to me was, um, it had a very kind of Cassavetes kind of feel to it. Like, and I love, I love um, those. I love Cassavetes movies and I love um, Jenna Rollins. And I think that was kind of my take on that. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to do something that felt, uncomfortably real and raw and just really dive off the deep end. And I believe we did. Absolutely. Um, I'm coming in a second to the, probably the fourth of these really notable indies with Emily, the criminal, but first we got to just note the variety of kind of random is maybe not the right word, but other stuff that's going on in the midst of all this, you were a psychiatric patient who has, a very hard to describe again, uh, uh, trajectory on Legion on FX, which if you look already at just a lot of people think this is one of the great TV series of the 21st century. Um, I think even you said it took some, uh, a few reads to sometimes know exactly what the hell was, was going on, but in the, you know, in the best sense, um, Mm -hmm. just, and, and also here, uh, maybe not for the first or last time, like, a character that was not in any way intended for you or even in this case for a 
woman, right? This was supposed to be a middle-aged man. Yes, it was. Um, Lenny Busker um, was a man, was a middle-aged man in <laughs> the original script, I believe, that Noah Hawley wrote. And uh, yes, I, I that was the first um, television show I did after Parks and Rec. Um, I was very, very kind of hesitant about jumping onto another show, but um, I loved Fargo. I thought Noah Hawley was a brilliant writer, and um, I met with him, and I thought I was meeting to play the the, the the lead the female lead um but uh it turns out after my after my meeting he just he thought you know what i, I think you'd be good as lenny busker i'm like <laughs> oh, i'm sorry i didn't read i didn't uh read the scripts i didn't read those parts um i gotta read that those parts again and see right. what the fuck you're talking about but um but then it but then i got really excited about it because um but my one kind of thing about it was i went i started reading thinking, wow, I could, I could do this part. But what's interesting to me about it is to do the part without them changing it um, at all. And I asked him, like, I- I'd like to do it, but please don't change the dialogue. Because the one thing, one of my pet peeves is when someone, you know, wants you to do something and then they go, but I'm going to rewrite it for you. And right. you're like, no, just <laughs> let the character be the character. Right. Um, and he, and he, and he did that. So I thought it was, it was a really, really amazing acting um, challenge for me, that, that whole show. And I, I loved the work that I got to do on it. And it was very trippy. Very, very trippy. The other just completely polar opposite thing before Emily the Criminal is just, I was fortunate to be there in 2019 and 2020 when you did, when you hosted the Spirit Awards, which I thought uh, you were hilarious. And I just wonder um, what, you know, kind of, was that a, a any hesitancy about doing that maybe for the first time or were, or were you jumping at it? And part B to that question, would you, uh, just putting this out there, if if asked, would you be interested in hosting the Oscars? I would absolutely love to host the Oscars. In fact, I've campaigned in the past to do it, and I hope they uh, I hope they take me seriously um, this coming year. Yeah. Um, really, um, yeah. I I love I love hosting. I think yeah. um, live television is such a challenge, and it's such a fun challenge i love you know i came up performing on the stage you know performing comedy and um and i i have a deep 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 love for films and so the independent spirit awards to me was i wouldn't i wouldn't just host anything i don't i'm not saying i just i love to be a host um i like to host parties but um (laughs) i like to i wanted to host the independent spirit awards because i felt very connected to that, um, to the spirit of, no pun intended, but to the spirit of that show. Um, I came up on watching that show. I remember John Waters would host it, you know, years and years in a row. And um, those were, that was the award show that I cared about the most. And, Mm. um, and, uh, and, and uh, I, I, so I felt very, almost, I felt honored when they asked me. um, And I took it really seriously. I think, I really, I love the idea because I came up in the nineties, you know, and I remember watching, you know, Billy Crystal host the Oscars and Whoopi Goldberg and, and, you know, they really used to put on a show. um, And, and, and it really used to be all about films. Um, And that's something that I, I, I feel like has been lost over the years. Things have become so political um, over the years. And I just, I love the idea of hosting the show and really keeping it about the films. Yeah. You know, I have no business. I have no interest in, you know, talking about politics on stage and, you know, of course there's a, there's a time and a place for it. But, um, but I was interested in, in having a old school kind of 
approach. And so, and, you know, and it's a challenge. I got to do sketches. I got to make videos. I got to, I, I, you know, for me, it was like, this is my own little mini SNL. It was you know, great. I didn't know I was going to host SNL, <laughs> SNL at that point. So I thought, fuck it, I'm going to make sketch videos. I'm going to do live show. I'm going to sing. I'm doing and do everything. I just want to put on a good show. <laughs> yeah, no, I like I, it. I, I like it. And I would love to host the Oscars. And I will, uh, I will, I think I will at some, at some point. And they would, I, I hope they would be lucky to it. have you. I mean, that would be awesome. Um, all right. Brings us, to, this brings us to your uh, major 2022 part A, Emily, the criminal art school dropout with massive debt begins uh, getting uh, entangled in the world of uh, financial crime. Um, again, you're a producer mm-hmm. on this uh, and just three weeks, a real true indie. And it was recognized as a great one with your nominations from the Gotham and spirit awards. Uh, I think people came away from it with, uh, I mean, you, I don't think you've ever had better um response from from critics and people than than to that just what that one um what you hoped it would be and and how you feel it it all turned out uh that film i mean i i've said it before i believe we made the version of the of the movie that is closest to what i wanted i i i'm so proud of that movie um the script it was undeniably good. You know, the script, John, John Patton Ford wrote, wrote a, wrote a great script. And it just, that movie proves to you that if you, if you have a great script and you shoot the script, you're, 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 you're going to be good. Um, We shot the script. That's what I'm most proud of about that movie. We, we did not compromise. We did not, um, we, we had, we did not have a lot of money, but we had a scrappy mentality and the spirit of the, script and the characters really infused into the production process and uh we all it was a true indie you know indie team it was just it we figured out a way and i will give a lot of credit to um jeff bierman our cinematographer and john Patton Ford, the director because the way we shot the movie was really down and dirty style and allowed us to move fast and have minimal lighting setups and to get it done and um and I think, you know, our editor, um, Harrison Atkins is, is a genius. And I think it just, it's all about the people you work with. And I think we, because the script was so great, we assembled a team that was just killer. And, um, and I loved it. I, I had no, the minute I read that script years and years ago, I just loved the character. And I just thought this is an opportunity for me to play somebody that sounds different from me. Um, that doesn't, you know, fall into that trap of whatever the deadpan comedy stuff. This is not a comedy. This is a, in my mind, a thriller. Yeah. Um, it was so. It just it had everything going for it, and it. I just. Uh, I think it's kind of. There's something, you know. I thought we thought a lot about Straight Time, which is a Dustin Hoffman movie from the '70s. Really simple, you know. In the '70s, they used to make movies that, to me, in my opinion, felt more kind of. Um, you know, like almost like you're getting a glimpse into someone's life. They didn't have to, you know, not everything had to be tied up in a neat bow at the end or something. Like it just was a vibe. And I feel like this had that kind of throwback feeling to it. Um, And it's a, yeah, it's like, I think I'm always kind of trying to make movies feel like the movies felt like when I grew up watching them. Yeah, totally. Whatever whatever that is. It was, it was great. And uh, all right, this brings us to the home stretch. We have, 
you playing on season two of The White Lotus, Harper Spiller, employment lawyer on vacation with her newly wealthy husband, Ethan, and another couple, Daphne and Cameron. I know you and Mike White have some history, which I think connects to why you came to be a part of this. But um, as as I I don't know if this was your or his word, but um, as close to a quote unquote normie, uh, close quote, yeah. as I think you've been asked to play. And, and you've said as close to yourself in a way as you've been asked to play, right? I felt that. Yeah, this was very personal for me. Um, yes, the normie, the normie kind of thing was like a very was kind of a funny framing that Mike gave me early on. He said, I think, I think it'd be really funny for you to play a normie. And I'm just going, that's, that's interesting. Um, and I think what he meant by that is, you know, when you look at all the characters that I've played, I played a lot of characters that are, you know, criminals, characters that are in mental institutions, characters that have a lot of complicated things go, going on. And so normie, I guess, is, you know, you're just a lawyer, you know, right. you're just a lawyer. Um, but lawyers aren't normal at all. And I know that. I right, right. But anyway, um, so it was a, I liked the idea of it, though. I understood what he was saying by that. And I think, um, yes, I think like, there's, you know, there was a lot of, there were, there was a lot of me in that, in that, um, in that part. And I think the part of parts of me that I don't, that I don't necessarily think I've shown in other, in other things, um, the more vulnerable side, kind of a quieter side that, that I haven't really, I guess, gotten to explore. I think also like there's a mature kind of, you know, grown up thing going on with those characters. And I think a lot of throughout the years, it's like, you know, and it's typical for most actors, you a lot of times play younger than you really are. And I think people forget, you know, I'm going to be 39 next week. (laughs) Um, And I think sometimes people still think of me like, oh, I'm like 25. Or I was like, no, I'm, I'm almost 40. And uh, I've seen a lot of shit. So I think it's, I think it felt good for me to play someone my my actual age you know someone that is married and understands the complications of marriage and these things and I thought a lot about my mom too my mom is a lawyer talked to her a lot about that and kind of these kinds of personalities types that are navigating these situations so it, it was personal to me on a lot of levels and what did you make when I mean I'm sure you've seen and read and heard you know there's polarizing reactions to the character there are people who uh found her to be you know the fun police in a way on the other hand she's seems pretty entitled to be annoyed that her husband is not uh necessarily attracted to her at at the at the moment he's dragged her along on a trip with this douchebag and his wife and just like i mean Uh did you how did you what did you make of the fact that and what does it say about audiences maybe even that there were um, such passionate and varying reactions to her. Yeah, well, I think I think it's a success, you know, when there's a dialogue when there's a dialogue like that happening in terms of reacting to stuff. I think it's I think it's you always want people to you always want passionate responses. You always want people to, you know, it's it's good when some people hate it and some people love it, and and I think that's good. That's all good because. It just means that you're hitting on something, you're hitting on, on a nerve, you know, you're hitting on something that's affecting people. And I think the thing about Harper and, and like 
I feel like it's so obnoxious when I always say this in interviews, but I still haven't seen it. Um, really? And I will someday. But I still, <laughs> no, I mean, I saw the first episode, but, yeah. um, but I haven't seen it and I will. But so it's hard for me to know, like, okay, how, how it was put together. But I know what I did and I know how I felt when I did it. And I think that the, the kind of amazing thing about what Mike wrote and how maybe, you know, the collaboration between what he wrote and what I did is that people related to her on different levels. And there were certain things that I think people felt really like, why would she react this way? Why would she not say anything or why would, you know? Um, but I think that in, there was a, there was a, I think that there was a relatability with her on any, on a lot of different levels. So I think it, it was upsetting for people because it felt almost too, yeah, it was just, you know, people felt like, wow, like that's what, that's exactly how I would feel or that's exactly what I would do or that is not like anything I would do. So right. I think all of that is really good. But um, I think that Harper, like, I did not like, look, I don't, I just had this conversation the other day about likable characters and we were talking about Deborah Winger and how cool she was and, and she is, but like how she plays characters that like, there's a, not a lot of female characters that can be grumpy that can be annoyed, that can be whatever they are without having m most happy audience go like, you know, this person's a drag. It's like, right. no, they're not, you right. know. Right. And also smart, you know, Harper is a smart woman. I think she's smart. She's critical. And I don't think she's among her people. So you're seeing, you're watching someone try to navigate that and it's uncomfortable. Right. But I feel, I felt compassion for it all at every step. With just the last, two minutes if it's okay I just really quickly run out the yeah. last three things um I guess I don't know having not seen the show yet I don't know if you'll know the full uh thing of what I'm referring to here but that whole obviously you acted it but I mean just the way it plays that scene in Noto where she's engulfed by the sea of men it's sort of surrealistic and haunting thing uh just briefly what in your view was that about as you saw it uh well, I mean, it was, first of all, it was kind of an homage to the Manikiviti, you know. Um, but I think, so there was a kind of, I think it, in some ways there was a cinematic kind of, like, um, nostalgic kind of romantic, romantic kind of reminder to the audience of, like, this is, um you're watching you know you're watching a, a film i mean even though it's a tv show it to me it was a film to me it was a seven hour movie and i think because mike the way mike writes it's like it feels like a movie to me when you're shooting it and it, i just think it, it it there's an elevation there it reminds the audience like wow like this is more than just you know tv show that's being shoved down our throats but um i and i think in terms of the subject matter like there's different interpretations, but I think that there's something about Italy and Sicily um, and the culture, you know, of, of sex and, and romance and, and, and misogyny and all these kinds of things that come up when you think about that, that are all, that we're all in there somewhere. I guess the last thing I'll say about that, that sequence is Italian culture aside, which I think it had a lot to do with that kind of, 
you see this kind of like serious kind of American like thrown in um, to this kind of like wild Sicilian culture. Um, and I think there's a, she's a repressed, I think there's a repressed kind of aspect of Harper that she's struggling with while she's on this vacation because she's being kind of confronted by this kind of culture that is like loose and sexy and, um, you know, whatever. And I think it's like, I think there's something, I think you're, you're seeing a woman like, (laughs) it's just animalistic. I don't know. You're seeing a woman kind of like be confronted by the idea that like, Oh, like, you know, there's other things out there that are going on and there's something that you might not be tapped into. Obviously the other kind of moment that's very open to interpretation or speculation is what actually happened between Harper and Cameron, if anything, when they went back to the hotel room um, was that something that you wanted to talk to Mike about or your co-star or did you just make your own decision about that? Uh, I made my own decision about that. I, there was never a concrete, you know, answer. Um, I don't think Mike is interested in the black and white of, of those kinds of situations. I think he's interested in the gray area. He's, he will, he, he wants, he wants people to project whatever they're projecting onto it um themselves i mean i had a clear kind of idea that i what i thought was going on but um but i don't but again i don't know how it was put together so i don't know how it was dealt with in the edit and how it came came across but in the script version scripted version there's a vagueness to to some of those scenes and you don't know you don't you really don't know i mean there were things that really shocked me i remember the day that um well and Megan, um, Ethan and Daphne were shooting their scene, um, done by, um, Isola, uh, Isola Bella. Um, and in my mind, there was no sexual <laughs> element to that scene. I think I thought, well, they're just having this conversation and she's kind of sweet and they're walking away. And then I remember hearing the crew or hearing, I can't remember who said it, but they were like, well, they definitely did something in the cave or whatever. And I'm like, what? My husband? No. Um, so I just, that, I remember that very clearly because I remember going, oh, wow. So this stuff is really up for interpretation. Like it is really up, it is really up for interpretation. I have no idea. And the same thing, I guess you could say about the way we leave Harper and Ethan. They seem to be back together, but you can also read a lot into their expressions, and that might suggest otherwise. And I, I guess that's a a nice thing about the show that kind of gray area. Absolutely, and and yeah, and I remember shooting that that scene, and you know, it was we we did not shoot chronologically so that there was a lot more to do um after we shot that and i was very very much i very much felt like you know i don't think this is just everything's wrapped up in a bow here and we're and and everything's cool like i think there's some lingering kind of things going on here and i wanted i that was important to me i had, i wasn't sure how if i communicated that or not but that's how i felt no totally absolutely Okay, last question. 
Between Emily the Criminal and the White Lotus, I think if anyone didn't know and admire your work before 2022, 2023, they probably do now. And so for people who may be curious, uh, I I know there's a lot of exciting upcoming stuff uh, for you, and I'd like to ask if you can tease it in any way. Uh, In particular, I believe on TV, there's the WandaVision sequel for Disney+, Plus, part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, Agatha Coven of Chaos, And then in film, Francis Ford Coppola's long-awaited Megalopolis, he obviously does things in his own particular way. He self-financed this one for a lot of money. Uh, There have been all sorts of rumblings about it, good, bad, and ugly. So, yeah, with those two in particular, hopefully you can shed some light on what we have to look forward to. Yes, well, I can tell you that my characters are very different (laughs) in both of these projects. Um... It was a very, very intense uh, back-to-back situation shooting these things. Um, but the Megalopolis is, oh man, I I can't really say I can't really say much about either of these things. Um, but I can just say that it was an absolute dream come true to work with Francis. I felt like, wow, I've I've found my 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 director. I found that my guy. I felt. He, he loves actors. He loves and respects the, the process of acting so much um, that it was just a match made in heaven for me. I, I, and the character that we created in that movie is, I don't know, it's unlike anything I've done before. I think people will, even physically, like, I just think people will have to do a double take. I don't think they're going to, I don't think anyone's going to see that one coming. Um, and uh it's epic. That movie is epic. And um, Kevin of Chaos was so fun. I I wanted very much to work with Catherine Hahn. Um, I think she's so great. And um, and without saying anything, really, I was just I had a blast. I I loved you know I love my character on that as well. And um, I think it's a the most kind of elevated you know marvel material that that's out there so um it was cool to jump into that world um with those people specifically awesome well i thank you so much for your time it's been fun watching all your stuff and prepping for this and i cannot wait for those two uh really a lot to look forward to thanks scott thank you me too Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.